Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking with Hilary A. Smith about her book, Forgotten Disease, Illnesses Transformed in Chinese Medicine. This came out with Stanford University Press in 2017. Now, while the book ostensibly focuses on a particular constellation of disease concepts and ideas that are all associated in some way with the term foot chi. It's really about much more than that. So the book uses a history of foot chi in different concepts, different periods, different kinds of literatures, mostly focusing on Chinese history, but not exclusively focusing on Chinese history. What it does is it uses this as an anchor to ground us in a history of Chinese medical concepts, a history of disease concepts, and really kind of a model of what it could be to write a history of disease that doesn't just assume from the outset this progressive narrative where eventually people came to the right answer, right? It was very, very all along. That's emphatically not what the book does. And in fact, what it's doing is, uh, among other things, helping readers understand what it could be and see what it could be to write a history of disease in, um, as Hillary puts it, on their own terms, right? So how do we write about Chinese medicine on their own terms? This is one example of how we might do that. It's a very extensive conversation, so I will let you get right to it, but I really hope you enjoy. I think it's, um, I hope it's clear that this is a book that's going to be of interest uh, and going to be very useful to teach with whether or not you are interested in China, whether or not you work in Chinese history, it's really useful, I think, if you are interested in a history of bodies and their transformations and the transformations and how we have understood them, how we understand them today and how we will understand them in the future. So thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Hilary Smith about her new book, Forgotten Disease, Illness Transformed in Chinese Medicine. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Hilary. Thanks so much for writing such an interesting book and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Thank you, Carla. I'm excited to talk with you. So, Hilary, could you start by saying a little bit about your background and specifically, how did you come to work on China and why health and healing in China specifically? Sure. Um, so a lot of my interest in, in China really originated in college. Um, uh, as I guess we, we hope that it will for, for most students, college really widened my world. Um, I, uh, I, I went in thinking that, um, that I wanted to study Latin because I thought every educated person should know Latin. <laughs> and I'd never had the, the opportunity to study um, uh, any, any languages other than um, French or, or Spanish in, in high school. Um, but when I got there, I realized that they also had Chinese. And um, so, I, so I forgot about Latin and I decided to sign up for, for modern Chinese. And um, 
just loved learning the language. And, um, you know, the more I learned about the language, the more I learned about uh, history and culture. Um, and then my, my interest in um, history of science and history of medicine came a little bit, a little bit later. Um, I actually uh, only took one history class in college, and that was in the last semester uh, in college, but it was an amazing history of biology class um, with a great professor, uh, Angela Krager. And um, that class really kind of opened my eyes um, to the possibility of looking at science um, humanistically, which really appealed to me. Um, and so uh, talking to um, uh, Professor Krager, she, um, she told me that um, actually there, there was such a thing, not only as history of science, but history of science in East Asia, because um, she knew I was interested in, in China and, and um, Chinese language. Um, so I started just reading as much as I could about um, that field. I uh, went to China and, and taught in China after, after graduation um, and, and then was very fortunate to study in a couple of departments of um, history of philosophy of history and philosophy of science and history and sociology of science um, that allowed me to um, kind of look at um, science, both humanistically and comparatively. Um, so thinking of, of China in comparison with um, Western science and medicine. And so um, I've, I've always been interested since that time in, in kind of um, exploring ways of understanding the world and understanding the body and, and health um, that make my own way of thinking about those things seem strange. <laughs> um, so, so that's sort of uh, how I how I came to um, the the kinds of work that I do and the kinds of research that I'm interested in. Great, thank you. So, the book that we're talking about today examines the evolution, and by you're very clear in the book that by evolution you don't mean progress, right? And we're, we'll talk about that because that actually winds up being really important. But the book looks at the evolution of a Chinese disease concept foot chi from its documented origins in the in the fourth century to the present day. Now, as the book shows, and as we'll talk about, I'm sure over the next hour, the term foot chi has meant very, very different things in different places and times. And that's an important part of the story. Okay, Hillary. So how did you come to foot chi as a focus for your work? Why this particular disease concept? Right. Um, well, uh, so, so I came to be interested in foot chi because I was interested in um, changes in nutritional knowledge um, and and changing understandings of of nutrition and sustenance. Um, and in the in the sort of um, typical story of the history of nutrition science, one really big moment is um, the advent of the idea of the nutritional deficiency disorder. Um, that is that, you know, lacking, lacking, um, vitamins in your, your diet can disable or kill you. Um, and that's a, a late 19th, late 19th, early 20th century idea. Um, and it's one that historically, um, was created through the study of beriberi, um, a vitamin B deficiency. Um, and beriberi was a big scourge in, um, particularly East Asia, but, but also around the world, um, in the late 19th century, um, 
And uh, since that was a, the time when germ theory was very, was very important, there were all of these investigations to try to figure out what was the germ that was causing beriberi. And they came up with something like 18 different germs that caused uh, beriberi before realizing that it actually wasn't caused by a germ, but was caused by um, a deficit of a micronutrient um, of, of vitamin B in the diet. Um, and so this was this typically is seen as a big um, uh, step forward in nutritional knowledge. Um, and I thought, well, um, wouldn't it be interesting to see um, what the history of beriberi looked like in, in China? Um, now, the translation for beriberi in modern Chinese is foot qi, is jiao qi. Um, and foot qi has a long, long history in um, classical Chinese medical texts. Um, so I, I started this thinking that I was going to write this history of beriberi, i.e. foot qi, in, in China. But as soon as I started the project, um, I realized that my understanding was very naive and that wasn't going to work. Um, I started talking to um, people in China, um, in, in uh, the PRC, who had a very different understanding of what foot chi was than beriberi. They thought it was athlete's foot. Um, so that was sort of um, puzzling to me. Um, and then when you read the uh, primary sources about foot chi um, earlier than the, the uh, 20th century, it's very clear that it, it can't really be understood just as beriberi. And so, um, so the project um, became more of a meditation on how to write about Chinese disease concepts over time than about um, sort of the development of nutritional science or, or ideas in, in nutrition. Um, and I really think it's, the book is about more than just this one disease than foot chi. Foot chi, I think, is really representative of a lot of diseases in Chinese medicine. Um, so a longitudinal history of it is a, is a good way of kind of orienting ourselves to some big changes in Chinese medicine in general over the, the course of imperial history. Absolutely. And one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is the way it uses foot chi as kind of an anchor in a case study to tell a much larger story about how, I mean, in a way, how we understand and tell histories of disease concepts, not just in China, but in other times and places as well. And so the book, um, and I should say this right at the outset here at the beginning, I think this would make an amazing textbook. Um, and by textbook, I mean kind of an assignable book for use in courses for undergraduates and graduate um, students, because it gives such an amazing and pointed and um, a very kind of usefully critical history of Chinese medicine as an exemplar also of what it can be to do a history of disease while it's telling the story of Jiao Qi. So I don't know if you if you wrote this with that kind of a goal in mind, Hillary, but I think this is going to be a book that's not just great to read, you know, to learn about this stuff um, and for scholars, but also to teach with. Oh, thank you. Yes, that is very much one of the hopes that I have for the book. So this book started as a dissertation, is that right? It did, So let's yes. talk about that transformation. Did anything, um, or what was the transition like? Did anything importantly change for you, either in terms of the way you were structuring the project and or the way that you were conceptualizing the major goals of the project? It did change for me, and it's actually very much connected to to what you've just said about. Um, um, I hope its usefulness as um, perhaps a textbook or a sort of book for a more general readership. Um, I think when 
um, I finished the dissertation, it was um, it was uh, much narrower and more tentative than the book that it became. And um, between the dissertation and, and the book, um, I had years of, of teaching experience, um, which really helpfully kind of um, broadened the scope of the questions that I was asking, because um, it made it clear to me uh, what what kinds of things um, students knew and didn't know and what, what kinds of questions they really were interested in. Um, and I became interested in those questions too. Um, so, so it helped me kind of reframe um, the book uh, a little bit more broadly um, in, in a way that, uh, that I, th- I think, I hope, um, will connect with, um, with undergraduates and with people who, who aren't already um, specifically interested in the history of, of Chinese medicine, but you know, perhaps are interested in um, the history of public health or, um, or the history of um, medicine globally. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, that was one of the, the ways in which it changed between when I completed the dissertation and, and uh, the book manuscript. So we've already talked about the fact that the book uses Futshi as a case study to do a much more capacious kind of work, both kind of historiographically and methodologically, about history of disease in China, but also in general. So let's get right into that, because that's very much something that the introduction to the book opens out into. So one of the persistent concerns of the book is how we approach the translation of historical disease terminology and concepts. So as you tell us in the intro, there's an officially sanctioned translation of Futchi that equates it with vitamin deficiency disorder beriberi. And you talked a little bit about um, the genesis of your own book and how you came to this topic, right? And it seems like the, you know that was also part of um, your process, right? And, and it makes sense because that's what a lot of the literature does. But the book argues, and this is in the words of the book, that we need a more satisfactory way to approach pre-modern Chinese diseases, and one that gets away from understanding historical disease concepts by asking, for example, what was foot qi really in different times and places? So Hillary, how did this become such a central concern of the book? And can you talk about um, this a little bit for listeners who may not be familiar with the field? Um, sure. Uh, so, yes. Well, I mean, um, one of the one of the ways in which it became a, a central focus of the book um, was uh, just my my own kind of difficulty or frustration in um, in explaining to people what uh, what the book was about. Right. <laughs> that that um, when you when um, you introduce it as being about one particular Chinese disease concept, foot qi. Um, the immediate question is always um, the one that that you brought up. The you know what was it really? Um, <laughs> and uh, and so my my sense that that's not really the question to be asking, and that 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 question itself um, sort of carries with it this um, this idea that um, whatever contemporary um, biomedical or modern scientific medical um, understanding we have of a disease is is correct is the the um, uh, the right one right and and all of the ones that preceded it are, were um, 
correct only to the degree that they um, kind of corresponded to the way that we understand a disease today. Um, so, so trying to kind of um, uh, defuse that question or, or overcome that question in my conversations with people is, is one of the reasons that it became um, kind of a central methodological concern. Um, and I draw on here um, uh, the, the literature on, on framing disease um, that has come out of the, the history of medicine over the past few decades, um, considering disease as not just a, um, a biological phenomenon, it is sur surely that, right, but also um, as something that is defined socially through, through a social process of diagnosis, um, and that that social process of diagnosis reflects very much um, the culture and the sort of political and economic circumstances of the people doing the diagnosis. Um, and so I wanted to apply that framing disease approach um, to a Chinese disease concept, um, which is a, a, a context that it hasn't really um, been used in uh, very much before. Right in the introduction, we also um, read about another major goal of the book, or at least a, a goal of the book, right? So the book also destabilizes narratives about disease and imperialism. And I think anybody who has been reading in the field of the history of disease and medicine um, may be familiar with this persistent concern, mm. right? And so Hillary, what um, can you talk about that a little bit? What is important for you to destabilize or offer a critical perspective on or move away from in terms of the way the field has related disease and imperialism in the historiography? Sure. So um, one of the, one of the um, common ways of, of thinking about, um, about disease outside of the West in the late 19th century um, uh, has been um, to think about um, the non-Western world as being afflicted by all all sorts of diseases, um, nutritional deficiencies, infectious diseases, um, kind of from from time immemorial, or at least since the agricultural revolution um, uh, in the Neolithic period, um, and that then in the late nineteenth century, when uh, when Western doctors and public health officials came along with, um, with new and cutting edge um, understandings of disease and ways of, of treating it, that they um, began to relieve some of that timeless burden. Um, but, but more recently, um, historians have uh, been a little bit more critical of that, that narrative um, and have pointed out that, in fact, um, the expansion of Western power around the globe also um, brought a lot of disease um, to uh, places outside of the West and, and, um, and expanded um, the, uh, the geographical area of, of disease um, where it had, had previously been more locally confined. Um, and so uh, in, in the way that this relates to, um, to my book, To Forgotten Disease, uh, is that um, very, very nutritional um, deficiency disorders in general, and particularly vitamin B deficiency disorder, um, has often been talked about as, as an affliction um, of East Asia in particular um, over centuries and centuries. Um, and the idea was that because people in East Asia subsisted on um, highly polished rice, that that was, uh, you know, and, and rice um, 
uh, contains in the bran uh, vitamin B, but if you polish it really high, highly, um, you lose that vitamin B. Um, so the idea was that since people in, in East Asia had been subsisting on highly polished rice for, for hundreds of years, um, they also had suffered uh, beriberi for a long time um, until uh, Western medicine came along with its ideas of um, vitamins and was able to synthesize vitamins and supplement diets and, and sort of relieve that scourge. Um, and this book is arguing that, in fact, um, widespread beriberi epidemics um, were uh, really characteristic of the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Um, they were characteristic of a new set of economic relationships um, and, and new ways of processing food um, and hadn't been kind of a major scourge from time immemorial uh, in, in East Asia. Great. And we'll actually see that story play out in more detail a little bit later when we get to the later chapters of the book. I think it's a really fascinating case study that also um, really usefully complicates the idea of foot chi as Chinese, right? What does that mm. mean? So, but we have to start from the beginning and the first chapter does that. The first chapter looks at the fourth century context in which Chinese observers first began to write about foot qi. Now, what's really striking here, and this is true throughout the book, is how much the chapters are telling stories. So here in this chapter, you open out into the story of a figure and here it's a fictionalized figure, but it, it does the work of, I think, modeling uh, a figure that could have been in this literature in order to orient readers in the time and space of the chapter. So I just want to mark that because as um, part of the writerly craft of producing a book, it's really striking and I think uh, just really effective and really draws you into the story. So that story winds up focusing on the earliest written record of foot chi that survives today. And this is from Gohong's Emergency Formulas to Keep Up Your Sleeve. This is a kind of home first aid manual. And it's such a fascinating text that, Hillary, could you um, open us into this story by saying a little bit about this first um, mentioning of foot chi and what's special about this, right? What do we need to know about this particular context in order to understand the importance of the changes that are going to follow? Sure. Uh, one of the things that is interesting about this earliest, um, this earliest mention of foot chi that still survives um, is that it's not in a um, highly theoretical text. It's, it's in this little handbook, um, Gohong's Emergency Formulas to Keep Up Your Sleeve, um, that really is is meant for um, home treatment, self treatment, uh, and um, and it it suggests in the way that it um, talks about foot chi that this is kind of a um, colloquial term that is in common usage. Um, so go home when he introduces um, the concept of foot chi. Uh, he doesn't do the thing that um, that Chinese writers typically do when they're introducing a um, a, a new term or a, an exotic term, which is to give kind of the etymology and the meaning of it. Um, and so it seems like it was something that um, people had a general kind of colloquial understanding of. Um, and uh, and Gehong is, is trying to offer um, some some ways of dealing with it that you can um, that you can do at home, right? Um, uh, and so that's the part of why you mentioned the kind of um, fictionalized account of the, the foot chi sufferer at the beginning of this chapter, um, part of why 
um, that was uh, was necessary is that you know the the sort of paucity of the sources in this early um, this early period, um, and also that they're um, they're they're not really um, sources like the Yellow Emperor's Inner Canon. They're not um, they're not really formal theoretical sources. They're they're really um, uh, kind of the nuts and bolts of how do you identify um, this uh, this disorder that you have, and then how what are some some methods that you can use to treat it? Um, and so then I sort of applied those um, those suggestions to this this fictionalized case. Um, and one of the things that I think um, this this early uh, mention of Foot Chi um, shows us is um, that it was it was considered like lots of other diseases in this period, um, kind of peculiar to the South, um, and and this was a time when lots of um, uh, Chinese aristocrats, the Chinese elite, um, were moving south into the Yangtze River um, uh, area. Um, and they were encountering there lots of different um, ailments that they weren't used to from from the north. And one of them was foot chi. Um, so I had mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that um, I think foot chi is not um, it's not completely unique. It's really representative in a lot of ways of um, diseases in Chinese medicine. Uh, and this is one of the ways it's in which it's representative. It's one of these diseases that is marked as um, kind of Southern for these new immigrants. Great. Thank you. Now, as we move from this chapter to the next chapter, we move into the seventh century. And it's actually a really different kind of a context. And the texts that Futchi is discussed in are importantly different from this um, handbook by Gohong that we were just talking about. Now, chapter two yeah. shows how healers and patients in the seventh century disagreed actually about the causes, the symptoms, and the appropriate treatment of foot chi and talks about the consequences and the nature, right, and significance of those disagreements. Now, this chapter looks specifically at two works. One was uh, Chao Yuanfang's Sources and Symptoms of All Diseases, and the other is Sun Simiao's Essential Emergency Formulas Worth a Thousand in Gold. Hillary, what was importantly different about these texts from that of Gohong, and, and why are those... Um, or what do those differences tell us about the context of the history of disease here? Yeah, so so um, both of these texts are um, they're different from Gohong's um, because in um, in one way or or another, um, both of them are intended to kind of make a statement about authority and expertise in um, medicine. So. So Gohong, um, back in the fourth century, um, medicine hadn't really been his main thing, right? He was um, he he was interested in, in lots of lots of different things. He's known best for his um, contributions to to um, Taoism, um, and uh, and his his formulary seems to have been kind of a side project for him that you know he really wanted to. Um, uh, to help people deal with their their illnesses on their own. Um, in the case of Sun Sun Miao's um, uh, uh, emergency formulas worth a, a thousand in gold uh, and Chao Yuan Fang's um, disease encyclopedia, um, both of these are kind of making statements um, about their author's um, expertise. Um, so in the case of Chao Yuan Fang, he's the, the head of a, a kind of editorial um, team that is putting together this disease encyclopedia um, on behalf of uh, the Sui government, and so it's it's sort of the um, 
the state's claim to um, comprehensive knowledge about disease in general. And in, on Sun Miao's part, Sun Miao um, later came to be uh, thought of as the medicine king. I mean, he was uh, sort of, um, I say in the book, the closest thing to a celebrity <laughs> doctor in uh, in the um, Suyantong period. Um, and what you can see in both of these, these texts is a kind of um, friction or disagreement between the authors of the text um, and others about what foot chi really was and um, how you can tell that something is foot chi and what you should do about it. Um, and so, so these are books in which you start to see the kind of um, competitive medical marketplace in which um, literate physicians operated. Great. Thank you so much. And this is actually a great, um, like when I think about the use of the book in the classroom, this is one of the clearest, most focused treatments of uh, the history of this medical marketplace that I've seen. And so this is a great chapter to teach with. Um, so I think the whole book is great to teach with, but this is a really, really clear account of the nature and significance of this medical marketplace. Now, when we move to the third chapter from this, and there's a whole lot more going on in the chapter that we just talked about that we haven't had a chance to discuss, I'll just flag that for listeners. Um, but we do, you know, we we do uh, move on to chapter three. This moves us into the 10th century, and ex- it explains how the government, in the words of the book, was unusually active in promoting public health standardized or was unusually active in promoting public health and how this government standardized and simplified FTSE in ways that would really interestingly eventually carry over into modern categories of beriberi. So this chapter is really important for a lot of reasons, but in part, this is important because this chapter is doing work that destabilizes what otherwise might be a very progressive kind of internalist triumphalist account of the eventual discovery that this was actually beriberi. And instead, this really shows us how to write a story that is about the social, political, cultural context that eventually leads us not inevitably into that place. So it's it's um really 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 interesting, and I think this is a pivotal chapter, chapter three, for the development of the argument of the book. Now, this chapter um, focuses in particular on a textual genre that the government fostered, and this is the genre of the official drug formulary. Hillary, what is so distinctive and important about this genre, and what do we need to understand about this in order to understand how this influences what happens with Fuji in this period? Well, um, so as you as you mentioned, the the Song period is a time when um, the government really took a much more active and and kind of um, interventionist role in in a lot of different um, uh, avenues of life, including public health, um, than than imperial Chinese governments had any time before or would any time after the Song. Um, and one of the things that the Song um, the Northern Song government does is to establish um, a system of um, of public pharmacies, um, and Asaf Goldschmidt has has written about this in in his work um, uh, in a very illuminating way. But um, the uh, the system of pharmacies um, 
ensured that um, that pre-prepared drug formulas would be available to people who were within reach of the pharmacies. Um, and it seems to have been a relatively extensive um, uh, system. Um, and, and that those uh, drugs and the drug ingredients would be relatively affordable to them even during um, times of, of epidemics um, uh, or times of great demand for, for those drug ingredients. Now, along with the, the pharmacy system, the Song government um, published uh, a series of, um, of drug formularies. Um, so there had been drug, drug formularies before um, uh, Sun Sun Miao's book that we just talked about in the, the previous chapter um, was a, a formulary. Um, and what these are, are basically, um, they're, they're books that um, describe how to, um, how to identify what you or someone, someone you love um, or someone you know is suffering from, and then um, what the kinds of, uh, of drug formulas are that will relieve that, um, those symptoms or that condition. Um, but with the, uh, with the official drug formularies, these were tied to the inventory of um, the pharmacies. Uh, and so it made it much easier for um, many more people to, um, to treat themselves, to sort of diagnose and treat themselves using the resources of the state. Um, and this was, was also the time when um, woodblock printing was coming into, uh, into use. And so um, uh, in addition to the very expensive uh, and uh, relatively inaccessible original versions of the state um, pharmacy formularies, there were lots of knockoffs and simplifications and um, abridgments of them that, that people used. Um, and, and so what these formularies did was um, they created almost a kind of um, dichotomous key for identifying diseases, um, kind of like you might use to identify a tree today, you know, so um, does it have swelling or does it not have swelling? And, you know, are the, if you're, if your legs are swelling, you go to a certain section and if they're not, um, you go to a different section and then it has sort of finer, um, finer uh, differentiations of symptoms. Um, and importantly, none of these descriptions of the symptoms required the kind of seasoned expertise of um, a of a physician, right? Um, they didn't require the ability to read a pulse, for example, which was kind of the um, one of the central techniques for uh, for a physician um, in diagnosing a patient. Um, and so there's lots of um, complaints actually among uh, literate physicians about how the pharmacy formularies are kind of dumbing down medicine. Um, uh, and historians of, med of Chinese medicine have sometimes disparaged um, this, this whole period, starting, starting with the Northern Song and into the, um, the Southern Song, as the era of pharmacy, uh, pharmacy formulary medicine, when it, things became kind of um, uh, rote and um, too oversimplified, kind of dumbed down. Um, but what's interesting to me is that uh, when it comes to foot qi, um, the only features of classical knowledge about foot qi that survived the transition into the modern concept of beriberi come from these um, uh, formularies, come from this, this period of kind of um, quote unquote dumbed down medicine, right? Um, <clears throat> and I think what that, what that shows us um, is how the kind of um, bureaucratic imperative that was behind 
the creation of these um, formularies in the Song Dynasty and the bureaucratic imperative in modern um, scientific medicine in which you need kind of um, uh, stable and universally readable disease concepts in order to communicate among health insurers and um, hospitals and doctors. Um, I think there's a a resonance in those two kind of bureaucratic settings um, that allowed um, at least um, a few of the types of foot chi that were were defined in the pharmacy formularies to become types of beriberi. And the types of foot chi that, that became types of beriberi were wet, dry, um, and sometimes um, chongxin, sometimes um, what I translate as distressing the mind beriberi. Um, and so there is, there is in, in beriberi something called wet beriberi and something called dry beriberi. Um, and some uh, contemporary physicians also distinguish a kind of beriberi um, called uh, shoshin. It's actually the Japanese pronunciation of chongxin. Um, and, uh, and, and I th- this has sometimes been seen as um, evidence that, oh, yes, foot chi really was beriberi because, look, they had wet, dry, and chongqing types. Um, but I don't, I don't see that as evidence that um, foot chi really was beriberi, but rather um, evidence that there's, there's a certain kind of similarity or resonance between these, these two medical contexts. And in fact, it's not until the next chapter and the 13th century when foot chi becomes diet-related or importantly, kind of uh, majorly diet-related. Right. So this chapter, chapter four, brings us into the 13th century and focuses in particular on a physician who was fascinated with digestion and who created a new form of foot chi that was related to bad diet. So this is really interesting because although we'll see from here on out, in a lot of contexts, not in all contexts, and you mentioned athlete's foot, right? And we'll get to that, that uh, foot chi becomes related to diet the way it's related to diet um, it really changes dramatically and differs dramatically. And uh, we see that beginning here. So this physician was Li Gao or Li Dongyuan. And his theory was really more focused on human habits than on environmental conditions, right? So if the previous accounts of foot chi were about uh, regional differences, right? There was a lot of um, southern miasmas and a lot of it was about the environment, environmental chi. He's really focusing on what we are doing that's causing changes to our bodies, what we're putting into our bodies. And he helps distinguish, though, a distinctive northern type of foot chi. So we still have this kind of a regional distinction here um, in foot chi, but here he's making it very diet-related. Now, according to Lee, northerners get foot chi because, and, and this is a quote from the book, they regularly consume kumis and drink without moderation. So for him, foot chi right, becomes a disease of excess. Um, so for you, Hillary, and we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about this chapter, but is there anything that's particularly interesting about this physician and this source for you um, when we think about how to situate this in this longer history of this disease concept? Um, yes, I, I think um, legal, I think, is really fascinating. Um, and uh, one of the one of the reasons that he's fascinating to me um, is that his idea about an internally caused form of foot chi before the idea had been, um, well, you, you have wet chi coming up into your, into your body from the ground, um, and, and that's what, what causes foot chi. Um, 
And Li Gao comes along and says, um, well, you can, all, yes, that is one way of getting foot chi, but also um, in the North where you don't have that same kind of um, uh, pernicious wet chi in the ground, you can also get it by, um, as you said, drinking too much, or um, particularly kind of dairy um, things like, like kumis, um, eating too much um, rich and fatty foods. Um, so, so this is kind of a, a dietary idea of, of causation for foot chi. And of course, um, what foot chi later becomes when it becomes beriberi is a, a dietary disorder. Um, but historians of, uh, of Chinese medicine haven't talked about Li Gao very much when they talk about um, the history of foot chi, um, because his understanding of the kinds of um, dietary problems that cause this is so different um, from the the modern understanding of what causes uh, beriberi that it's a, a, a lack of um, of something rather than overindulgence, which is what um, what Li Gao points to. Um, and it's it, it seems to be sort of different different people who are afflicted by this type of foot chi. So one of the things that's interesting to me about um, Li Gao is that. Um, that in, you might expect in a kind of progressivist narrative about foot chi, that this moment would be highlighted or celebrated as, oh, finally, somebody understands it's, it's diet related, right? Um, but in fact, because, because Li Gao's understanding is so different, um, and probably um, the disease that he was observing was, was um, probably, in fact, not beriberi, um, it it gets kind of ignored in the broader history of foot chi typically. So as we move from this really fascinating case to the next chapter, we look at the social and economic conditions that turned this new dietary disorder that we just talked about into, in the words of the book, the most prominent form of the disease in late imperial China. Now there are two patterns that you mark here in 16th and 17th century medical literature that represent important transformations or new ways, different ways of understanding this foot chi concept in this period and context. On the one hand, foot chi is increasingly thought to be recurring or chronic and diet related. And also at the same time, it's transformed from a primarily regional to a universal disorder. Hillary, why are these transformations so important um, or these new different ways of understanding foot chi so important and so importantly different from what had come before? Yeah. Um, well, so, so the, um, the change in thinking about um, foot chi uh, from thinking of it as something that um, that could kill swiftly. Um, you know, some of the earlier sources, uh, like in Chao Yunfang and, and Sun Sun Miao, um, warn that uh, that foot chi can kill you in a matter of days or a matter of months. Um, here, the the emphasis on its sort of lethality um, drops away, uh, and and in these 16th through 19th century sources, in which you have um, a really important new um, uh, new set of, of sources uh, to um, kind of reveal what people are uh, suffering um, when they when they have foot chi, which is uh, case histories. So in the, the 16th century, you start to get a specialized literature of case case histories, and in that you get a 
um, a bunch of cases of um, foot chi. Um, so what stands out in these these case histories of, of foot chi is that um, it it is written about as something that people suffer from over the course of decades, over the course of a lifetime, um, repeatedly, uh, and uh, not not as something that that kills them swiftly, but but as something that recurs um, periodically, um, and that they need to learn how to to manage um, uh, with drug formulas or with other other techniques, um, and so you start to get all of these new. Uh, um, these new drug formulas um, in the late imperial literature with these very revealing names like um, uh, pinching out the pain decoction or spring in your step pills or um, uh, things like leg replacement pills or flying steps of an immortal powder, um, which really kind of uh, make it clear that the the symptom that most people are um, are most bothered by and, and are looking to relieve um, is pain and often in the, the lower legs and the feet. Um, and so uh, how do we explain this change in the literature? And by the way, this is, this is another um, change that has been essentially ignored in histories of, of foot chi in the past, um, which uh, tend to identify things in kind of the early and medieval um, sources about foot chi that look like beriberi and then to um, ignore the late imperial literature because it just, it doesn't match. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense as, as beriberi. Um, so, so to explain these changes, I mean, one possibility, of course, is that um, they reflect a change in the actual epidemiology that maybe lots more people than before were suffering from chronic pain disorders of the limbs. Um, maybe something like gout or arthritis. Um, a lot of these sources seem to um, resonate with uh, ideas of gout or arth arthritis. Although, um, you know, I sort of throughout the book, I, I'm resisting um, the idea of, of connecting these, this disease with a um, contemporary um, biomedical definition. Um, so that's one possibility is that there's a change in the actual epidemiology. Um, and particularly the, the late Ming, when, when a lot of these case history books were being written, this was a period known for rising standards of living and um, increasing opulence and, and indulgence. And it might be that those kinds of economic changes did set the stage for an increase in um, what today we might call diseases of, of affluence. Um, or it could be that by, by articulating concerns about indulgence, literate doctors were expressing their anxiety um, about uh, chain, economic changes, about the kind of increased social fluidity of the period and new sources of wealth and power. Um, uh, and these new sources of wealth and power sometimes um, kind of trumped the prestige and security that had been offered by scholarly activity in the past. So, so it might be um, either or both of those um, things converging to, to explain these changes. Um, and then the, the second change that you mentioned about the kind of regional understanding of, of foot chi, um, this, is, this is a period when some writers, and typically these were those with um, higher social and political status, um, they were rejecting the idea of regionally bounded forms of foot chi that had been really common um, up into, and continued to be common in that time. Um, and also of regionally appropriate therapies, um, because apparently it had become quite common to divide foot chi into a northern and a southern type, the northern type um, caused by overindulgence and the southern type by 
that uh, pernicious environmental chi. Mm. And it had been common for, for local healers to um, recommend kind of regionally specific kinds of treatments, um, meaning strong purgatives in the, in the north and more kind of gentle replenishing drugs in the south. Um, but these doctors who rejected that, that kind of regional identification um, wanted to claim a universal applicability um, for, for what they did. Um, and, uh, and so they started to argue that, well, you can, you can contract either external or internal foot chi, either in the north or in the south. Um, right. And, and a good doctor needs to know all the manifestations and treatments and not just kind of adhere blindly to one regional form of diagnosis and therapy. Um, and I think this is another area just to kind of um, flag this. This is another area where foot chi is not unique or exceptional. Um, this kind of um, debate um, among different kinds of healers about um, whether some diseases adhere to particular regions or people from particular regions and whether therefore there are regional ways of treating them. Um, that's, that's a much broader debate in late Imperial China and Fuji is just one of the instances where we see it playing out. Awesome. Thank you. Hilary. So here, as we move to chapter six, we have the story of the rise of beriberi in Asia and an account of how foot chi and the vitamin deficiency disorder came to be equated in 19th century Japan. So as we go to chapter six, we move to Meiji Japan. Now we also here see a transformation in foot chi from a dietary disease that was associated with excess and affluence to beriberi, which is associated with poor, uh, with the poor and institutionalized as the chapter. Um, indicates, and also from a disease of excess to a vitamin deficiency disorder. So in Japan, now we're talking about kake, the Japanese pronunciation of fuchi, and this is the disease that practitioners of Western medicine came to define as being caused by ingesting too little of dietary vitamin B1 or thiamine. Okay, so Conceptually here, this chapter is doing a really important kind of work because it's arguing that the story of how Kake acquired its modern dictionary definition as beriberi is not a story of discovery, right? This is not a triumphalist, and finally, they came to the right answer. Hooray, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, not, it's importantly not that. It's a story of creation instead. So, Hillary, can you talk a little bit about the importance of that distinction for you as a historian and also about the conditions here that created or enabled the creation of this disease category? Uh, so I, I think that that distinction is really fundamental to what I'm trying to do in the book overall. Um, uh, and And so this, I mean, if this chapter, since it um, is really about the the origin of um, modern understandings of foot chi. Um, this is this is the one I think that is the most um, uh, kind of explicitly contrarian um, in in talking about uh, the identification between foot chi or in the Japanese pronunciation kake and um, beri beri as a as a creative act rather than than one of discovery. Um, the uh, so um, in in um, Meiji Japan, 
um, what you have, I think, is the um, convergence of um, of political and economic factors that both create large beriberi epidemics um, and then also um, cause those to be interpreted through the lens of um, Western medicine at that time. So um, uh, after the, the Meiji Restoration, um, particularly in the, the military in the 1870s, um, you have uh, you have significant um, numbers of soldiers and sailors coming down with with beriberi, and um, the uh, the personnel who are assigned to to deal with this um, are largely um, folks trained in Western medicine. So people like um, Takaki Kanahiro, um, who in early in his life he had uh, he had studied. Chinese medicine, but most of his training had been um, in London, and had, and he had uh, was a very accomplished um, practitioner of, of Western medicine, and, and thought of Kake very much through a um, the lens of Western medicine and de- and debates within Western medicine, um, uh, and so um, when he saw um, many cases of Kake in military hospitals, um, and he had not he had not encountered. Um, kake before in the in what what before the late 19th century had been the more typical context, which would have been um, individual, generally fairly well-off patients in their own in their own homes. Um, when he saw kake in the the military hospitals, he thought of it through um, the the lens of of Western medicine um, and uh, and thought that it might have something to do with an imbalance in in diet or nutrition, um, which for him didn't mean vitamins because this is uh, late 19th century. This is before the the discovery of vitamins, but um, for him meant um, an imbalance in in protein and carbohydrates and fat. Um, And so he adjusted the the diet of uh, sailors in the the Imperial Navy with great success um, and and is therefore celebrated as having, um, having helped to relieve Japan from um, what has sometimes been called uh, the national disease of beriberi in the late 19th century, um, uh, and and so this this connection that that was made between kake and beriberi um, almost almost nothing except for the name kake or foot chi um, is coming from the classical East Asian medical um, uh, tradition in in Meiji Japan, um, and that has to do with the um, the relative prestige in Meiji Japan of Western medicine and um, Kampo, what, uh, Chinese medicine or, or classical East Asian medicine. Um, uh, so uh, Western medicine was um, was the officially recognized form of medicine. Um, it was it was um, certainly kind of the first tier of medicine in, in Meiji Japan, and so it's through that lens that uh, that Kake was. Um, uh, was analyzed um, and was was talked about. Um, I think I've gone a little bit off of what your original question. Was. No, 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 not at all. This is great. I think we, um, with the to kind of bring us back to the chat, the chapter does a really clear job. I think of um, bringing us into the conditions that enabled the creation of this, right? And you talk about um, the modernization of the Japanese military, and which is epidemiological. 
um, but also epistemological concerns, right? So, or conditions. So reforms of healthcare and the educational system that gave Western style medical doctors the authority um, to kind of uh, have the word, right? Or the, the not maybe not the last word, but an authoritative word on um, public health problems. So I think that the like the chapter does so much more than we have time to talk about. Um, but the for you, um, is there anything like particularly important about these conditions and the history that you're showing here that you would really want listeners to understand when they came away from this chapter? Um, well, I, I guess the um, the point is that it's it's not as though um, doctors like Takaki Kanehiro came along and um, and and pointed out, oh, hey, this kake that people have been writing about for for centuries, um, it, this is actually very berry. And now, you know, we we understand that it's it has something to do with imbalance in, in the diet. Um, it's not as though then um, that was a great revelation or a discovery for um, practitioners mm-hmm. of Kampo, right? Um, uh, this was basically a um, a solution to an immediate problem of the late 19th century um, that because of the um, epistemological context of, of Meiji Japan, as, as, as you mentioned, um, then was kind of exaggerated to cover all of um, the history of Kampo or uh, Chinese medicine. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting detail in this chapter too that we won't have a chance to talk about, but I just want to flag for listeners about the different waves of kake um, that affect these transformations. And so there's um, an account of a wave in the 17th century and then the late 19th century. So this wasn't just like a moment where boom, now, you know, they understand it. You're really showing, I think, the richness and the depth of the historical transformations that happen over over time that bring about um, this new and this creation of this new disease category. Now, this brings us to chapter seven, and there's so much more in here, right, that I want to talk to you about, but at the very least, we have to get to athletes, but I think. Um, So I'll situate (laughs) us a little bit. So chapter seven, in the words of the book, looks at how the modernizing elite in early 20th century China accepted this Japanese reinterpretation of Futshi as beriberi, and how most Chinese people with little experience of beriberi actually reject that definition. Um, and, and instead um, favor a definition of athlete's foot. Okay, so the chapter is really clear, and I want to make this clear um, in the conversation for listeners, that there's no like hard and fast, this nation does this, this nation does that, right? right. So this is not a story that essentializes anything. Um, and in fact, it's working to destabilize that. At the same time, what it does is it shows us really interesting tendencies that differ um, in the PRC, in Japan, in Korea, in Taiwan, around how this disease concept is understood today. And that's not just about nation versus nation. It's also, as you show, um, a matter of looking at different kinds of communities in each of these different contexts. Okay. So to make Mm. that, just having made that really clear, right? One of the striking things here is, of course, the athlete's foot thing. So Hillary, how do we get athlete's foot um, in this context in um, the PRC in particular? And what's important about that for you? Yeah. So um, athlete's foot um, is actually 
it seems not a um, new understanding of Fuchi, but when it's among um, the the large basket of um, things that have met Fuchi uh, over the course of, of um, Chinese history. Um, and if you look in um, pre-modern Chinese sources, um, you can find uh, case histories, you can find illustrations um, that focus on symptoms that uh, that are um, sort of skin symptoms, um, perhaps something like athlete's foot, like tinea pettis. Um, so it's there, and it was there all, all along, um, but it's uh, largely been ignored in um, in formal histories of foot chi. Now, why? Um, and, and so, so if you're in um, if you're in the People's Republic of China and you talk to people about foot chi or um, uh, you look for foot chi, what you're going to find is um, uh, complaints and discussions about itching feet and stinky feet and um, you know, sort of the terrible nuisance that is that is athlete's foot. Um, so, how did it come to be? Um, that that is the most prominent meaning um, among uh, in in a kind of colloquial setting in China. Although, as you as you note, um, it, it it varies depending on um, uh, you know the the uh, education and the uh, field of training of um, the person that you're talking to in the PRC. But sort of generally, this this colloquial meaning of athletes. But how did that come to be so prominent? Um, well, uh, in in the chapter, I argue that um, because beriberi was never a um, was never a disease of kind of nation threatening importance in China as it was in Japan. It was never known as the national disease, and there were you know sort of scattered um, beriberi outbreaks in China in um, the the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, but it never sort of consumed. Um, state attention or uh, the attention of, um, of uh, prestigious physicians in the way that it did in, in Japan. Um, uh, so because there, there weren't these kinds of uh, major beriberi um, epidemics, um, that meaning of foot chi never became kind of broadly meaningful to people in China, even though for, um, for, the modernizing elite in Republican China in the early 20th century, um, it was very important to accept the beriberi translation as part of kind of the package of um, modern understandings of science and medicine um, that were being assimilated from, from Japan um, by, uh, for example, the, the Guomindang's Ministry of Health, right? So, so it was very important in a symbolic sense to accept that foot chi was very berry, but for most people, that meaning just wasn't—it um, uh, it wasn't something that that meant a lot to them personally. And so, the, the athlete's foot uh, meaning um, was something that that continued to uh, have resonance for people in China. Hillary, thank you so much. So with that, this actually brings us to the conclusion of our conversation. I want to flag for listeners: there's also a conclusion to the book that. Uh, we won't have time to talk about, but that does a really great job 
bringing us back to not just the main through lines of the story, but also some of the major conceptual points about the history of disease and what we're doing as historians when we investigate disease historically. Um, and, and it's just really, really useful. So I just want to flag that for listeners. So Hillary, there's a whole lot, obviously, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to put on the table for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had the opportunity to become readers? I guess one thing that I would like to emphasize um, is that um, I think this book, um, although it is uh, an in-depth study of one disease concept of foot chi, it's really not just about foot chi. And I, I've, I've mentioned this, I think, in our, our conversation a little bit before, but um, but it really is um, in many of these different periods and many of these different transformations representative of what's happening to other disease concepts as well. Um, and this, the idea that... Um, that foot chi, that we've lost something, that we've lost um, some understanding um, of uh, what foot chi was and what um, what doctors were doing about it. Um, that is something I think that you could say also of um, of uh, Tianhua, flowers of heaven, things uh, that that uh, get translated now as smallpox or huoluan, um, which gets translated now as cholera. I think there are similar kind of losses of depth and meaning that happen um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries to other disease concepts. And I think it's really important to keep that um, loss in mind now, because now is a time when um, many, uh, many concepts from traditional Chinese medicine are being um, sort of standardized in their translation. There are lots of different um, organizations, WHO, um, the uh, official um, organization in the PRC that deals with translation of Chinese medicine. There are lots of organizations that are trying to establish a kind of standard terminology for Chinese medicine. And I think if, if we're not aware of what potentially is being lost in choosing a translation that comes from the late 19th or the early 20th century, for example, um, that could actually um, could actually uh, impact what we can learn from Chinese medicine um, that's clinically applicable today. That's really, really important. Um, so thank you for highlighting that in the conversation. And now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next for you, Hillary? What are you working on now? So since the book, I've, um, I'm still interested in the history of nutrition science. So, so as I said, you know, I start, this started out as a, um, a study of changes in concept of nutrition, and I'm still interested in that. So what I'm, um, what I'm looking at doing next is something like a, a China-centered history of nutrition science. Um, so there's, there's a kind of typical story about um, the development of, of nutrition science, um, which is that, you know, there are all of these amazing um, experiments going on, mostly in European and American laboratories in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that give us kind of the building blocks of modern concepts of nutrition, like calories and um, vitamins and, and things like that. Um, and that those concepts then displaced older understandings of um, sustenance and, uh, and, uh, and nutrition. Um, and I, I think the story is more complicated like that and more complicated than that. And particularly when you look at the Chinese context, um, there are lots of ways in which 
Chinese bodies and Chinese ideas um, resisted and complicated um, the development of these sort of universal um, nutritional concepts in, in uh, modern nutritional science. So as an example, um, in the early 20th century, there were recommendations that um, that uh, milk, fresh milk, was a kind of universally healthy, good element of um, modern diets. Um, and it was discovered um, much later in the 1960s that, in fact, um, a, a huge proportion of the global population, something like 75 percent, is lactose intolerant. Um, and in China, the, um, uh, the rates of lactose intolerance are um, typically like 80 percent or, or more. Um, and so consuming fresh milk can actually make people feel uncomfortable and sick. And so that so there are ways in which um, in which the recommendations of nutritional science, which kind of purported to be universal, really were built originally on um, on the bodies of um, of subjects of, of Western European descent and and turned out not to be so universal. Um, and then also in terms of ideas um, in Republican China, um, there are lots of ideas about um, what you should eat in order to be healthy that um, that that coexist with and and are in communication with these new scientific ideas about calories and vitamins and so forth. So so things like um, Buddhist vegetarianism or ideas about hot and cold qualities of food, which are kind of a, um, a, a traditional um, understanding of, of how to balance a diet. These things are not, they're not separate from nutritional scientific ideas. People are con consuming, um, no pun, but uh, consuming all of these ideas together and kind of synthesizing them. And, and so I want to, I want to kind of complicate that history of nutrition science by considering these, um, these complications and these contributions, I think, that, um, that Chinese bodies and Chinese ideas made to uh, ideas about healthy modern diets. Well, best of luck with that project, which also sounds super, super important, Hillary. And thanks for taking time away from that research to talk with me about this book. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks so much for listening and have a good day.